I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Hi, I'm Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Anne McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table. points. 34.21 degrees north, 89.31 degrees west, and 51.45 degrees north, 1.15 degrees west. Oxfords. Oxford, Mississippi, and Oxford, England. As most Americans, I grew up with the name Oxford resonating in my head about the warm, taupe-hued stones of the city that is one of the seats of higher learning in England. That Oxford was one of the goals of some of the students at the United Nations International School where I was a student for my primary years. As someone who came of age in the middle of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Oxford, Mississippi is another name that is burned into my brain. Little did I know that in my sixth decade, both cities would become touchstones of my growing universe. This show is a celebration of both cities and a tale of two Oxfords. Although both Oxfords occupy my time these days, Oxford, Mississippi was the first to enter my ken. That came about 50 years ago. I'm always surprised and mystified to realize that many of my students of all hues, religions, and stripes are unfamiliar with the trials and travails of the African-American civil rights movement. So, as background for those of you who are a bit rusty, July of 1948, the year I was born, President Truman desegregated the armed services. 1954, Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education overturned separate but equal segregation and paved the way for large-scale desegregation. It was on. 1955 sees Emmett Till lynched and Rosa Parks sit down. 1957 sees the establishment of the Southern Christian Leadership Movement and the integration of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1960, four students from North Carolina A&T, that's Agricultural and Technical College, if you're not sure, 
take on the lunch counters and sit in at a Woolworths, demanding to be served. Sit-ins are launched. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is also established. 1961, Freedom Riders begin testing out the laws that prohibit the segregation of interstate travel. And it would all escalate in 1962, 50 years ago, in October, when James Meredith became the first black student to enroll at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. There were riots, and President Kennedy had to send in 5,000 federal troops to keep order. The riots and uproar and mayhem surrounding Meredith's enrollment unfolded at dinnertime on the black and white television in my home and Oxford, Mississippi, its square and its courthouse were seared into my brain. Everybody's got the heads bowed down Sun don't shine above the ground Ain't going down to Oxford Town I certainly as a child of the North Never thought that I would walk the streets of that town Yet, there I was, 38 years later On a plane to Memphis, Tennessee To meet up with my girlfriend Daphne Durvin Heading to a symposium on Southern food To be held at the Center for Southern Culture At Old Miss Daphne and I had been buddies for yonks, and she worked at Copia, the uh, wonderful food and education center that the Mondavis established in the wine country of California that lasted for too short a time. She was friend enough to know that I had armored myself for my Mississippi assault with attitude and with music, and she knew that when we crossed the state line from Tennessee into Mississippi, I was going to pump up the CD player and let fly with a little Nina Simone to free my anxieties. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi I looked out of the window and as we drove by the fields I recognized cotton growing. Cotton. The first time my black Yankee self had seen that. Memories of ugly scenes and happy darkies bending over bowls in my textbooks came flooding back. I watched until I finally said pull over. Risking accident and probably arrest, Daphne and I got out of the car, scrambled down an embankment, and picked some cotton. I kept it in my room for the entire symposium. We named the adventure The Thiefing of the Cotton, and it became an annual event on what became our annual Oxford trips. We drove on until we rounded a corner and founded ourselves facing the infamous square with its central courthouse looking so benign almost four decades later. Rounding the square, there was a restaurant where I knew I would be welcomed by the New Orleanian chef John Currents, whose family, friend, Gail McDonough, had soothed my worries about the trip. I spied a bookstore, Square Books, owned by the then mayor of Oxford, and said to myself, 
How bad could a town be that was run by a man who had my cookbooks in the window of his shop? We also spotted an antique and folk art shop brilliantly named Material Culture that was owned by the person who would become my first Mississippi friend, Dorothy Haworth. She, her husband Tom, their children and their dogs have made me at home in Oxford in ways that neither one of us would have thought possible in the 1960s, and I now stay with them, not only for the annual meetings of the Southern Foodways Alliance that the symposium grew into, but whenever I am fortunate enough to be in Oxford. I've been going to the Southern Foodways Alliance annual symposium for its entire 13 years of existence, missing only a few when events called me elsewhere. I've spoken, supported, and watched as the Southern Foodways Alliance has grown from a small, scrabbling group who tried to come together to overcome the recent Southern history that had so marked my adolescence, and as it grew into a national organization that is known and respected in the food universe. While the initial mission of black and white coming together at the southern table to celebrate the food that is a result of common history is sometimes lost on new members, it's never far from the minds of the 50 founders who recently came together at a dinner in Birmingham. The Alliance has helped me make my peace with Oxford. See, I'm not one of those who worship at Faulkner's grave at Roanoke. I've noticed that Oxford has changed from those turbulent years and is now a thoroughly indigo city, yeah, albeit within a red state. It's got a vibrant dining scene, and some of the boutiques actually have dresses in my size. No mean feat among a population of co-ed sorority girls and very small trophy wives. I can now number many Oxford folks among my personal friends, including John T. Edge, the SFA's roving head and unofficial ambassador, his wife Blair, whose artwork I collect, I spoke at their wedding, but that's another story. The staff of the SFA and the Center for Southern Culture, and the usual collection of artists and crazies that I number as my extended family. I have let the ugly images of my youth fade into memory and come to move on from the past. Now, trips to Mississippi are more marked with who will be at the symposium and where will we be eating than with Nina's Cri de Coeur. One of the first people that I turn to when I think about where to eat in Oxford is Tom Holworth, architect extraordinaire, an Oxford native, and husband of Dorothy, who was my first connection with the town. Hi, my name is Tom Holworth, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Welcome, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, I want to just talk a little bit about the food in Oxford. And you've told me some very interesting things about Oxford and its restaurant history. Well, you know, like any restaurant industry, Oxford's only managed to look prosperous once the restaurateurs were able to sell the accompaniment to uh, any great meal. That would be alcohol. That would be alcohol. You know, Mississippi was the last state to repeal prohibition, and that didn't happen until 1966. 1966? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We don't we don't believe in getting too ahead of ourselves. <laughs> 
I never knew that. Oh my goodness. How distressing. I think we were one of the last states to adopt prohibition, but I know we were the last to repeal it. Good Lord. Well, that makes a difference in restaurant history. Well, it, it, it made, it made uh, you know, in, in my hometown, in Oxford in particular, it made a huge difference because it not only made it possible to serve a meal that and make a profit at the same time, a good meal and make a profit at the same time, but it also spurred the whole entertainment industry. Uh, industry. I mean, all of a sudden there were venues for musicians, um, and so that sort of certainly adds interest to the community. Um, and there were places, I mean, Goodness knows we wouldn't have gotten the writers, you know, Willie Morris and Barry Hanna. Do you think they would have come back to Mississippi if we hadn't had liquor? I doubt it. I doubt it. I'm trying to figure out what Faulkner was doing. That's the big change that happened here in the late 60s. I mean, there were other things going on in other places in the 60s. But in, in, in Mississippi, we were just excited to be able to drink legally. Well, yeah. Yeah, that may explain a whole lot of the other stuff that was going on in the 60s. But let's not go back to that stuff. But the trick becomes then, and what has grown? Because, I mean, Oxford is now, in my way of thinking, quite the restaurant town. It is. It is. Um, and, you know, there was... There was a generation, as, as you know, I, I guess there always is a generation of, of people probing the possibilities. You know, Oxford had, you know, a couple of kind of your meat and three restaurants. They never lost business as as the landscape of restaurant of the restaurant business evolved. They just didn't gain market share like the others. So, so when younger people started going out to eat and, and, um, and dining out through the 60s and 70s and, and then, of course, into the 80s, became more and more prevalent, you know, more women working, uh, you know, as, as the, the whole landscape changed the way, um, the way people eat out. Right. And, and so, um, so there, were, there were opportunities. And, of course, you know, the first one to really, you know, make it here was John Currents when he came and um, with Palmer Adams from New Orleans and brought, honest to God, New Orleans fine cuisine to Oxford. Um, <laughs> Quite a migration. Yeah, that's right. But that's amazing, and he's sort of, I... I kind of refer to him as the Danny Meyer of Oxford because he's got spots and spots and spots there, you know. Yeah, he's got, he's got more restaurants than, than Richard has bookstores. <laughs> and they're both two pretty good pillars of Oxford as far as I'm concerned. But there are other places in Oxford as well. I know you and Dorothy have taken me out of town to a lovely restaurant. Probably thinking of Ravine. Yes. Um, just south of town, on the southern edge of town, uh, Joel does a um, does a terrific job, you know. And he's a trained chef and uh, uh, has a very sophisticated palate. 
but was um, as as assertive as John, maybe even more so, and 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 is 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 very you know his menu um, very carefully identifies the sources of his food. So uh, when you when you go to read Joel's menu, he's got. Um, you know, boss tomatoes or, 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 or uh, Linda's spinach, you know, depending on the season, where he's getting what. He's, he's very uh, farm to table. forthright about his chain of custody there. Yeah, real farm to table and, and delicious, delicious food. But there are also some kind of, I don't want to say down and dirty, but more down home places to eat as well. Well, you know the the, uh, the 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 there's there are two places that jump to my mind in my personal experience when you when you start talking about that. Ajax Diner serves one of the most satisfying um, sort of meat and three. I mean, it's it's so satisfying. It's just a meat and two. Yeah, well, in um, my case, it's just the three and no meat sometimes. Yeah, or, or a lot of people get four vegetables there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the great rhetorical question, you know, after a meal at Ajax is, did you save room for dessert? <laughs> and the answer I've, is usually, what? <laughs> I've never heard anybody say yes. Um, and, then, and then the other one is the Taylor Grocery, Taylor Catfish, which is, you know, seven miles south of town in the little hamlet of Taylor, um, where where they've got a converted general store that used to serve, and they still serve now, uh, um, lunch meals as well as uh, weekend meals there. But they don't, uh, they don't. It's n- it's no longer a general store. It, the, the restaurant side of the business just kept growing and growing until it finally swallowed up the grocery store altogether. Yeah, and swallow is a wonderful word with Taylor because that catfish is just sublime. Oh, it's John Currents, the James Beard Award-winning chef who is Oxford's Danny Meyer, oversees kitchens on the square at City Grocery, at Bourree, at Snack Bar, and a catering business while writing articles and, I hope soon, a cookbook. Currents, though, is not the city's only restaurateur, and there are other delights ranging from breakfasts at the Bottle Tree Bakery to the lunches at Ajax Diner where the vegetable plate is enough to make a vegetarian out of the most hardened carnivore. The butter beans are sublime, and the fried okra is without peer. I, though, have been known to order just a double portion of the collard greens with chopped onions and vinegar on the side and simply go face down in them. More than restaurants, more than food, more than the Southern Foodways Alliance, for me, Oxford's centerpiece is the bookstore known as Square Books that is run by Tom's brother. Square Books is a place where you can find anything from the latest treatise on Southern architecture to the most recent installment in your favorite mystery series. And of course, there are myriad books by Southern writers who seem to be a legion of their own. 
There's a separate building for children's books as well, and one for remaindered books known as Off Square, which is also the site of another of the town's icons, Thacker Mountain Radio. Although it's been compared with Prairie Home Companion, Thacker Mountain Radio is a show that is uniquely Oxford in that it celebrates the town's writers, native, adopted, or simply visiting, and the musicians that give Oxford a musical life all its own. It even has its own blues festival. It's Thacker Mountain Radio on the air. Somebody's going to sing a song and somebody's going to read a story. Now, it may seem counterintuitive to speak of Oxford, England, after Oxford, Mississippi, but that's how they came into my life. Oxford, England has always been the summum of academic aspiration for many, and indeed represents the best of European educational tradition. Oxford was first settled in Saxon times and was then called Oxenaforda, meaning a place where the oxen forded the stream. The university came later, much later, and was first heard of in 12th century documents. As students flocked to the town, ordinances were passed that decreed that students had to live in approved housing, and thus the college system that is so much a part of the university structure began to develop. Like other great European universities, Oxford continued to develop through the Middle Ages and the Ages of Enlightenment, and by the early 20th century, the city was a hub of activity and well-established as a city of learning, with even a second university, Oxford Brooks, joining the more familiar Oxford University. I had not heard of Oxford Brooks until I met Don Sloan, who works there. Hi, my name is Don Sloan, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Hi, Don. Welcome. Most Hi, Jessica. <laughs> okay. Most people don't know that the town of Oxford actually has two universities, Oxford University and Oxford Brooks. Tell me a bit more about Oxford Brooks and particularly about the program that you were head of school for. Okay, well, yes, Oxford is known internationally as a city of, you know, the center of education. And as you say, there is Oxford University, which has, is 800 years old, and that has a bit of a head start on us. But Oxford Brookes University has been around for about 150 years, and I head up the Oxford School of Hospitality Management, which, as the name suggests, is a school that specializes in hospitality, tourism, food, and cultural studies. Um, the school has been going for about 70 years. We have about 450 students from maybe 35 different countries, and they have different aspirations. Some want to go into the international hotel industry, but others more recently have got more of an interest in food and drink and their place in cultures, and they have an interest in pursuing careers in these kind of areas. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't one of your graduates sort of in charge of the food for the London Olympics? Yeah, young guy called Ben McEwen. He was only a graduate of five years ago or so. He was actually in charge of all of the food for the press corps at the London Olympics. So there were 27,000 press from all around the world, and Ben was 
feeding them over the period of the Olympics and the Paralympics in London, yeah. And we didn't hear any complaints, so it must have been pretty darn good. I think so, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I know Oxford Brooks does is it has a restaurant that is student-run that is pretty stellar. But it is only one of the pretty stellar restaurants in Oxford. Could you tell us some of your favorites? I know it's kind of hard to ask you what your favorite child might be, but what are some of the places that you find that you go more often? Well, I've got a a good insight recently because I've been chairing the Oxfordshire Restaurant Awards. So there were 75 entrants, all of them competing to be the best restaurant in the entire county. And... I'm kind of proud to say that Oxford Brooks Restaurant, which is Brooks Restaurant in my school, uh, came top for service of all 75 restaurants in the county. But um, when it comes to my favourite, well, the good thing about Oxford Shire as a county is that it attracts people from all around the world. So you can eat in Thai restaurants, you can eat in... English restaurants, you can eat in Chinese restaurants. There's no lack of diversity. My favorite is, I guess, a little place called Chiang Mai Kitchen, which I've taken you to before. Yes, I do remember, upstairs. And it's the kind of place I'd like to just shut myself away in and enjoy. But there's no shortage of diversity in in the Oxfordshire dining scene. Food again was the vehicle that brought me to this Oxford. I journeyed there for the first time in 2010 to attend the Sunday Times Literary Festival at the request of Don Sloan, the head of school at Oxford School of Hospitality at Oxford Brooks. The Literary Festival is an amazing week-long coming together of writers and academics at Christ Church College in Oxford. There, amid the burnished stones of the venerable institution and Christ Church's dining room, is the model for the dining hall at Hogwarts in all of the Harry Potter films, so it was a delight to one time have a meal there with Harry's ghosts. It's an intellectual love fest of presentations, interviews, and tastings. Last year's festival featured authors ranging from Walter Isaacson on his biography of Steve Jobs to culinary historian and cookbook author Claudia Roden, and the topics ranged from fashion designers at the opera and even a dinner reception featuring Nigerian poet and Booker Prize winner Ben Okri that was curated by Nigerian actress, singer, and General Dynamo, Patti Boulaye. I miss the designers at the opera, but I managed to get to the dinner, and it was indeed stellar, topped off by a performance by Boulaye. My trips to Oxford have afforded me a very special view of the city, one grounded in literature and in food. This is especially ironic when I realize that I spent my first nights in Oxford in jail. wasn't arrested, but rather I was the guest in the boutique Malmaison Hotel 
that in Oxford is located in the town's former jail. Oxford's jail is not just any jail. It was the hanging jail for the county, and I suspect that many an unhappy ghost walks the rooms. I know that three of the former jail cells have been transformed into comfy bedrooms with all of the modern amenities and then some, but I'm a bit leery of ghosts, and so I stride through the old part eerily lit by candles after dark to find roost in the newer section of the hotel where the karma is less fraught. The Malmaison, though, is a perfect spot to roost as it is walking distance from Christ Church where much of the literary festival takes place. It's also not far from all of the wonderfulness that is Oxford. A short walk places me at the Ashmolean Museum where I can savor the past. Another stroll and I'm in the town center wandering by Georgian masterpieces and half-timbered buildings that date to the Middle Ages. I can ramble in meadows where spring daffodils are sprouting or browse the antique shops or simply drool at the one especially dedicated to antique jewelry where I can only dream. Another shop offers treats and trifles from Alice in Wonderland, a book that was written by an Oxford resident, Lewis Carroll. Then there's a wide choice of restaurants. And I've been taken to tea shops where Brown Betty teapots offer selections of tea and dessert treats run to treacle tarts and cream tarts. French chef Raymond Blanc has restaurants in town should the need for Gallic offering be felt and chicken tikka masala is reputed to have become England's national dish, and Indian restaurants also abound. There are wine bars and music venues and high-end spots like my favorite, Quad, that offer British food. Now don't laugh. British food is pretty good, and the food at Quad, as in Quad Erat Demonstrandum, thus it is demonstrated, does just that. It demonstrates how good well-prepared, locally-sourced British food can be. Quad's Garden on a fine spring day is the place to be, and I should know I've had many a memorable lunch there. Once, a reunion with a grade school classmate I hadn't seen in 40-plus years involved five bottles, count them, five bottles of wine. There were only two of us. No visit to the city of higher learning would be complete without a trip to a bookstore. If Oxford, Mississippi revels in square books, Oxford, England has Blackwells, which sells everything you can think of, as well as such notable Oxford-connected authors as John Buchan, Dorothy Sayers, Iris Murdoch, Colin Dexter, and J.R. Tolkien. Then there's the book tent at the Literary Festival that sells all of the festival authors. Finally, there's my favorite, the one-pound bookstore, the one that is my missionary's downfall. At a mere one pound a book, and all of the books in the store are one pound, I stock up on the art books, cookbooks, compendiums of wacky British humor, biographies of the notable and the infamous, and anything else that hits my fancy. After all, they're only one pound each. 
then heavily laden, with just a small stop at the candy store to stock up on wine gums and Edinburgh Rock, and a pass by Boots for more lavender bubble bath. It's time to head southward to the airport, dreaming of treacle tarts and chewy candy. No matter if it's a transatlantic flight or a short hop to Memphis, I invariably leave either Oxford with a stomach filled with good food and a suitcase full of books, bubbles, and antiques, and a heart hoping to be asked to return for another year in one of my Oxfords. So until next time. Feeling good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone. Feeling good.